Welcome back to 10 Blocks. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. This week's special episode features a conversation with Manhattan Institute Senior Fellow and Director of Constitutional Studies, Ilya Shapiro, MI Book Fellow, University of San Diego Law Professor and U.S. Commission on Civil Rights member, Gail Harriet, and Manhattan Institute Fellow, Wei-Wa Chin. They are discussing the Supreme Court's momentous ruling in Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard, that the use of race in determining university admissions is unconstitutional. Both Shapiro and Weiwa have written on this topic for City Journal. You can find those pieces on the website. We hope you enjoy this fascinating discussion. Good afternoon. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm the Director of Constitutional Studies at the Manhattan Institute, and I'm delighted to present uh, this very rapid response uh, after decision panel on uh, the ruling in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard uh, and UNC, two cases that have been effectively uh, consolidated, then unconsolidated, then reconsolidated, just with the note that Justice Jackson, because she was on the board of overseers of Harvard, did not participate in that aspect uh, of the case. Uh, And the court ruled, I assume everyone knows who's uh, tuning in, at least the top line, by a six to three vote, the court ruled uh, that uh, using race in the way that Harvard and UNC have for their admissions decision, uh, basically the way that most selective institutions use race is unconstitutional, violates the equal protection clause. Uh, Justice, there are 237 pages of total opinions, of which Chief Justice Roberts' majority, joined by five uh, other justices, the more conservative ones, um, is only 40 pages of that. It's very tight. It's very clear. Uh, There was some discussion leading up to the uh, outcome. Would there be some middle ground? Would there be some wishy-washy sending it back for reconsideration in some way? That is not the case. This is a very tight and clear ruling. It uh, doesn't mean there's not going to be follow-up litigation. We'll, we'll get into that. Uh, but for example, um, we have permitted race-based admissions only within the confines of narrow restrictions. University programs must comply with strict scrutiny. They may never use race as a stereotype or negative, and at some point, they must end. Respondents' admission systems, however well-intentioned and implemented in good faith, fail each of these criteria. They must therefore be invalidated under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. That's it in a nutshell. Uh, In another place, he says, uh, to end racial discrimination, we must end all of it. That also is a nutshell of uh, uh, this ruling. Very much in line what Roberts has written in other cases. It's a sordid business that's divvying us up by race. The way to end racial discrimination is to stop discriminating based on race, uh, all uh, of a line. Anyway, uh, to hear uh, different perspectives on this, uh, we're going to hear from Gail Harriet uh, and Weiwa Chin, and hopefully Ed Bloom, who's the architect uh, of this uh, litigation, uh, the, the president of Students for Fair Admission, uh, who, who orchestrated this, brought in the lawyers from Consovoy McCarthy, uh, and otherwise, he is obviously busy doing media and, and press conferences, but he will hopefully uh, uh, come in for about five minutes. Uh, Gail Harriet, uh, I'll make these introductions brief, is a law professor at the University of San Diego and a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and a book fellow here at the Manhattan Institute. Looking forward to your book, Gail. Uh, and Wei-Wa Chin is an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the founding president of the Chinese American Citizens Alliance of Greater New York. So we have different backgrounds, different perspectives. Gail, I'll turn it to you now. Uh, what is your you know, you have a, a long background as, as an academic, uh, as, a, as a civil rights commissioner. Uh, this is your Super Bowl right here. What is your you know, top line reaction? Well, first of all, I, I, I'm very pleased with the opinion. Um, you know, last night I was going through in my mind or, you know, is, is it possible that, that we will get a, a, a bad opinion? Is it possible we will get a wishy-washy opinion? And, you know, this is not my first rodeo. I was around, um, I was around actually for, for Baki, although I was a, a law student at the time. Uh, and that was back in 1978. Well, um, let's back and, up. Let's back up and explain this for, you know, those of us who were not, well, I was barely around in 1978, but just to bring everyone up to speed real quick on the 45-year legal trajectory here. 
Okay, we start out the first case that, that, that tried to make it in the Supreme Court uh, was a case called Defunis versus Odegaard. Um, and the court ended up dismissing that case, not deciding it, um, because um, by the time it reached the court, uh, Mr. Defunis was actually ready to graduate from the school that, 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 um, that was at issue. Um, and, but what was interesting about that case uh, was that the court's most liberal justice, Justice William O. Douglas, um, dissented from the, 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 the court's decision not to decide the case. And he was very, very strong saying that, you know, race preferences uh, and admissions are wrong and it doesn't matter whose ox is being gored. Back in those days, you know, it was, it was very typical uh, for the most liberal ju ju justices um, most liberal judges on some of the, 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 the lower courts um, to take the position uh, that race preferences and admissions um, are unconstitutional and wrong. Um, and so that was Defunis. Then along came the case of Alan Baki uh, versus the regents of the University of California. Um, Baki was a Vietnam veteran um, who had worked as a medic during the war. He was not from a wealthy family. His father was a, a mail carrier um, and he had been denied entry into uh, the medical school at the University of California at Davis under circumstances that pointed very, very, very strongly to race. Um, the California Supreme Court had decided that this sort of thing was, was, was unconstitutional. Um, it went up then to the United States Supreme Court and we got a 4-4-1 decision. Four justices said, look, under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race and federally funded activities, this is a no-brainer. This is, this is illegal. Four of them said, no, 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 the, the law may say that, but it doesn't mean that. What it really means um, is that discrimination against, against minorities is really bad, and you know this is okay, this is okay. And one justice, the man in the middle, Justice Lewis Powell, he tried to be nuanced. Uh, he rejected most of the arguments for, for allowing race preferences. Um, and he held, you know, he, 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 he agreed with the, with the justices who opposed um, race preferences that the University of California at Davis's program um, was, was illegal. Um, but um, he threw in, gosh, you know, if a school is doing this because it wants to capture the benefits of diversity uh, and that will benefit all students at the institution, that that may be okay. And I think he thought he was just opening the door ever so slightly to ever so 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 small a, a preference, but boom, um, it didn't matter that Baki had won his case. What mattered is that every university in the country um, immediately moved from calling their programs uh, affirmative action programs that were designed to 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 remedy past discrimination. They switched to the diversity rationale, um, and the rest is history. Um, and by, 25 years later, in the Michigan cases in Grutter, uh, the now a court majority ratified uh, that one Justice Powell uh, uh, vote, and we've been proceeding on that basis uh, ever since. Okay, so today, what did the court do with that Bakke Grutter uh, history? Because it didn't explicitly overrule them, right? No, no, it, it said instead um, that it was this was always done with the intention that it would be temporary. Um, that the, the universities always have to comply with strict scrutiny um, and that they cannot um, use preferences to disadvantage um, students of other races. Um, and therefore, therefore, Harvard and UNC had not, had not done what they needed to do um, to justify this, that the time was up. Um, and at this point, the court is proceeding from the notion um, that race discrimination uh, is improper um, in admissions policies. Um, now, I'm not so sure about this notion of it was always understood you couldn't disadvantage um, students of other races because that's the way preferences work and they've always worked that way. Uh, college admissions are a zero sum game. There are only so many seats. If you're gonna preference somebody in, you're preferencing somebody out. Um, but you know, the point that this needs to be temporary, um, I think is well taken. 
um, and the court has finally uh, decided that its patience is worn out. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, Wewa, what is, what is your reaction? Is this what you were expecting? How does this affect uh, the groups that, that, that you've been leading, that you've been in touch with? Uh, this has been a great, great decision. Uh, I think so many things have been validated in this, that the sense that we knew as uh, the groups, yeah, I'm talking from the uh, uh, perspective of many, many families that have been affected, Asian Americans who have applied for decades and known uh, that there was a heavier, heavier burden that they had to carry it. And that was not right. That was not something that was American, was not something that they in, in uh, they thought was constitutional, not that you know we know all the details of how all the cases worked, but it would seem to fly in the face of what was right. And, and now everything has been validated in that sense because uh, the discovery through the case was clear that there was indeed discrimination. And it's as Gail said, and as any reasonable person would say, is that when you have a, a preference for one, you are demeriting, giving some unpreference and taking away from somebody else. And so uh, we, we can't have that with merit in mind. If we are gonna judge a person by their abilities, you have to judge them by their abilities. You can't judge them by an attribute, and race is an attribute. Race is not an achievement. You do not use that as something that, oh, I, I created this race. No, you, know, you, you could create work, you can do work, you can accomplish and achieve, but uh, something like race you are born with. So this is a validation of that. It does have a, a lot of implications on other things that we're doing because it's not just for the colleges. It's obviously something that we see here uh, in the city here in New York, across the country, with uh, not just the colleges, but also the high schools. And we at the Chinese American Citizens Alliance of Greater New York, we do have a lawsuit out there uh, in, in, uh, against the Department of Education for some of the ways that they will still try, the colleges will still try to have racial preferences. And that's, and we could go into this with greater detail a little bit later on the social economic kinds of uh, ways that you can manipulate. That's a kind of proxy. People are gonna start looking at proxies and that's something that we have to be very careful about. Um, but the, the ruling, I, I, I didn't have a chance either to read the entirety, uh, but the words that were taken out uh, to, to put in that reasonable um, person's understanding of it, to say that it's inescapably imponderable those were some of the words that Roberts used to say that this kind of assessment that you had used for how you can admit somebody because of race, uh, I think that those uh, were, were really striking us home here to say that we have to think about ways of, of making sure that people do adhere to the law going forward. And then also not just the the words, but you know we, we have to think a little bit further too in the, the spirit of what we're trying to achieve. And then of course, uh, to look at the other parts of what we can do in making sure that merit is what's going to determine how kids, individuals, individuals, not a race gets in because they're not, it's not a race that's going in when you accept a kid. It's that individual and we have to look at that really smallest, most important, most difficult uh, to defend minority, which is the individual. Um, Gail, uh, I interrupted you previously in, in, in your reaction, and a lot of what uh, Weiwa was bringing up is, is uh, existing litigation, the Thomas Jefferson case about admissions at a, as a selective high school, getting rid of uh, merit-based admissions in favor of a lottery to try to racial balance in some way, I'm sure. You mentioned last night you were thinking about different ways to what the court might do. Uh, why don't you game plan, given this ruling as we've described it today, what does this mean for future litigation? What are the next challenges that we're going to see that may well end up back at the Supreme Court uh, in a few years? Well, there are a lot of them, I, I, I fear. I mean, I'm celebrating the opinion. I'm hoping that over the 4th of July weekend, I can savor Robert's opinion as well as the, the concurrences uh, by Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Kavanaugh. 
but you know we do have to look to the future here uh, and there are some some issues that are going to come up um, one of the things that's in robert's opinion um, is that it will continue to be legal um, for a college or university to read through a student's um, their, 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 their essay um, or their application. Um, and if the essay describes how that student has overcome adversity um, in a way that's related to their race, um, that one can, um, one can take that into consideration. And I think, by the way, that's, that's right, that Roberts is not, you know, he's not just going soft here. I think that's as a matter of logic. It is right that if the school can take into consideration how a, a student applicant has overcome adversity, there's no reason that, that overcoming adversity that is in some way related to race um, cannot be taken into consideration. But there's the potential for schools to give give much more emphasis um, if it's another represented minority uh, and to blow off um, a similar discussion um, about a different way in which someone has overcome adversity. Um, so that's something that 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 um, will need to be kept an eye on. Um, and you got to remember on, on this sort of decision, um, lots of university officials out there are essentially evangelists for the gospel of, 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 of DEI, diversity, equity, um, and inclusion. Um, and you know, they're not going to be deterred by a Supreme Court opinion um, if they don't wanna be, and they're not gonna be. Um, they're gonna look for ways to get around it. Um, and some of those will be blatantly illegal, I think, and they will lead to litigation. There are also ways that, that university officials in good faith um, can try to promote what they regard as a, as a necessary level of diversity um, through, through arguments that, 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 that um, I think will hold some water. You know, in the future, um, we can expect, for example, um, that colleges and universities will pivot um, from race-based affirmative action to class-based affirmative action. Um, and that's, you know, that that's legal. Um, and, you know, indeed, the whole reason we have uh, public universities is we want to make sure that everyone um, can benefit from, from a college education, not just those who can afford private school tuition. Um, but there are, are, are issues here. Um, and the first one that comes to my mind is how do you define socioeconomic status for the purposes um, of what is going by the name class-based affirmative action? You know, is it income? Is it wealth? Is it whether your parents went to school? Is it where, you know, your, your, the neighborhood that your family uh, happens to reside in? You know, what is it? And if colleges and universities try to use the discretion that they have um, to engineer a definition of socioeconomic status um, that will give them the right race composition that they want. So it, it tends to bring in more African Americans and exclude more Asian Americans. Let's, let's go. Say. Let's go precisely more uh, uh, on that. Um, you said, uh, uh, you know, and 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 Chief Justice Roberts, towards the end of his opinion, says that they're not going to allow simply proxies to accomplish the the same thing that that the regime that they declare unconstitutional today uh, does. Uh, in defining socioeconomic, uh, what, how do you draw the line be between something that's just, just a proxy that's, that's uh, you know, the same thing as having race-based preferences, just a workaround, versus something that would be constitutionally permissible? Is it simply setting a, a dollar figure if your family makes under uh, you know, X amount, perhaps weighted by where you live, by purchasing power or something? Is it uh, zip codes? Um, I mean, how... Uh, you know, if, 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 is it what the end result is? If, if it shows that your seemingly neutral uh, method magically generates the same gen racial balancing you wanted to achieve otherwise, that looks improper? Or, or how, you know, in this, in this future litigation, are courts going to, to deal with what's, what's okay in terms of socioeconomic or, or other types of uh, admissions uh, and, and this impermissible race-based regime? I think that in theory, the key is intent. Um, you know, are they are they aiming at bringing in um, the the racial composition that they want? But like, how do you track that? 
and I think this is going to be a very interesting issue. Um, I think there will be litigation about it. Um, and I think it will be very fact-based litigation. Uh, there will be an effort to see, well, when the university was coming up with this, this formula for what constitutes socioeconomic status, um, were they constantly referring to, well, what, what, what racial composition would that give us? Um, and if, if that can be documented, it's going to be a smoking gun. Um, and so we got we to look into that. Um, and, you know, this, this struggle is far from over. Um, Wewa, in terms of uh, the groups that you're close to, the, the Asian American groups, uh, and this litigation was framed through the idea that um, the, the racial preferences most uh, severely um, impact uh, Asian American uh, applicants, whether, and Chief Justice Roberts, by the way, says that some of these categories are nonsensical. You know, why group East Asians together with South Asians together with, you know, Southeast Asians, uh, and depending, you know, irregardless of when they uh, have come to the United States and, and all of this. Um, but how, uh, you know, in the, are, are you saying that only GPA and, uh, and SAT scores or standardized tests uh, should be considered, but, or, or are there other things that, that you think can properly uh, be considered without being this impermissible uh, race-based regime? This is where it's very difficult to say in, in, in total. Now we could go and say that Steven Pinker, who is a professor, a world famous professor from Harvard, has said that uh, if you had a class at Harvard that was chosen solely by the SAT, uh, you'd probably have a better class. And so, but they don't do that. You know, they, they use the holistic measures and they use uh, other measures that, that uh, are, are, include uh, recommendations, the GPA. And GPA, I, I don't like the GPA very much because very often in one school, everybody graduates with a 99, but actually they fail on the, something like the SATs. You know, they come out with a 400 on the SATs, but they're all passing with 99. So. You, you have to have some sort of standardized testing to make sure that there is indeed that kind of, of um, correct assessment comparatively about uh, how uh, people are achieving. So you do have to give extra weight to that. Now, how they do it, it's really like uh, Robert said, it's what the university says is trust me. And so if they want to have a certain amount of uh, ability to maneuver. And I, I grant that, you know, sometimes one year they may all need oboe players, you know, they're going to do a oboe orchestra. But there's another point to this. It's a point that we have to have race not be a, considered, and you should not use some of these other ways of getting the proxy. So if you want to go and say, let's do it by zones, you know, the usual ways of trying to, to go around this is say that we're going to do holistic missions, we're going to do the socioeconomic, and socioeconomic could be done in different ways, right? You know, they could go and say that anybody who's in a single parent household, uh, we will give an extra 10 points. Um, I, I think that the social part is the worst thing because economics, you can measure that. That's an easy to measure um, uh, thing, but for the other ones, you can manipulate it a lot more. There's using zones, that's a proxy very often, as we know. And so uh, those are things that uh, we, we are concerned about because uh, we do have people who go to schools. They, you know, I'm, I'm saying the Asians, for example, in New York, they tend to go to certain schools and then if you're gonna be penalized because you're in that district, that is not fair. You know, they should be judging each kid on its own, uh, on that kid's merit, as opposed to saying that, well, um, your parents uh, are, 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 have, some education. And so therefore we are going to deny you an education. Uh, that seems kind of weird. Uh, we, we don't want to have families where you have generations of, for example, doctors. And so you've been growing up as, or lawyers, uh, if they grow up in that kind of environment, the nature and the nurture, it's not surprising that they may want to become doctors and lawyers. And why should we deprive them or society of that? And that's something that the university should grapple with, that this kind of maneuvering is not good. And we can look at how from our community, I think that the first thing is that we say, we want to have it on a level playing field. 
It doesn't mean that we all come up to the same point. If we fail by having good objective, objective standards that we have to meet, that's all fair and square. But if you put it into a black box and say, well, uh, today we're going to play with personality. Um, and it's very clear in the discovery that personality was often uh, character was uh, treated as something that the Asians didn't have, which uh, was amazing. Uh, it's absolutely astounding. And they actually looked at the numbers too, where they qualified the, the different races by the academics. And the, the academics were much worse. Uh, for example, on the blacks, but they scored the best, um, much more on on the personality. So there are things there that that are clearly gained, and so we want to have things that are not as gained, which is why we want to have greater emphasis on standardized, good standardized tests, and we don't want to have standardized tests that are meaningless because. Um, with a lot of, and that's another thing that we have to watch for. You know, this is not a, a legal issue now, but in looking at how the the uh, tests are constructed, if you dumb down a test so much that everybody gets about the same grade, like testing one plus one versus calculus, everybody can get a ninety nine on one plus one. But when you start having more difficult kinds of of um, topics and and um, uh, areas that have to be uh, tested, that's where you have the differentiation and you have to make sure that the tests still work. You can't take away, as the College Board is now doing, they're taking away questions that they find that one demographic group does not do well in. That does not serve anybody. We have to make sure, and from our, not just, I don't think that this is just an Asian issue. This is really an, an issue for all races, that we want to make sure that we maintain the standards at a high level for everybody, because that's how we serve uh, every individual as well as our community at large. I hadn't heard about the question manipulation on the standardized tests. What, what, what more is in the news is that a lot of colleges are dropping standardized tests uh, altogether so they, they can uh, have even more of a black box in their admissions decisions. And as, as Gail said, I think that's going to be litigated in the sense that if that's a pretext to put in racial preferences through the back door, that's uh, going to uh, to be a problem. But uh, Wewa, I wanna uh, highlight uh, or emphasize something you said because one of the most damning parts of this litigation uh, from the trial court through the appeals to what was referenced at oral argument and now in, in the final Supreme Court majority ruling uh, the way that the manipulation of the personality scores in particular to downgrade Asians uniformly was uh, striking. Uh, and also the, the racial balancing, the fact that despite the shifts in the applicant pool, the percentage uh, by race uh, over time, it's grown in the last decade or two of, of Asian American applicants, uh, certainly. Uh, and yet the, the overall level has been uh, you know, by race remarkably stable across Ivy League or selective uh, 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 institutions uh, started to change a little bit when this litigation was filed, uh, uh, curiously enough. And finally, one other statistic that I think was uh, convinced the justices that this was no way to run a popsicle stand uh, was that, for example, uh, at Harvard, um, the uh, uh, an Asian American applicant in the 99th percentile for GPA and, and, and SAT was as likely to get in as a black applicant in the 40th percentile uh, of the applicant pool. Uh, for, for whites, I think it was something like uh, 99th percentile was as likely to get in as the 50th percentile of, uh, uh, of, of, of black uh, applicants. So uh, those stark contrasts, I think, put paid to the notion that uh, regardless of what anyone thinks of Baki, the use of uh, race as one of many factors for uh, the compelling interest in educational diversity. Gruder in saying that, uh, well, you know, temporarily we allow this again as a holistic review. Uh, it seems like that use of race, one among many factors, not determinative, uh, clearly was not what was going on. And that's what ultimately undid uh, this regime. Now, I haven't had a chance to read uh, you know, barely a little bit of Justice Thomas's concurrence, which is longer than 
um, than Roberts's majority. I think it's about 60 pages turned to the majority's 40, uh, let alone the dissents. Gail, I don't know if you've gotten to any of those uh, opinions and you know what you can glean from uh, other justices' discussion here. Well, I kind of feel like a fraud being on here today and that like that many pages cannot be read in the amount of time sure. um, that we had for this. Uh, I skimmed Justice Thomas's um, opinion. Um, it looked like it was probably very eloquent. He, it went on about you know a number of, of issues. Um, and I was pleased to see that not only did he cite me, he cited my colleague, Michael Rappaport, um, he cited a report by the National Association of Scholars, which I'm on the board of directors for. So that made me very happy. But I can't really say that I have read his concurrence uh, carefully or that I have read Justice Gorsuch's concurrence or Justice Kavanaugh's. Uh, instead, I was wrestling with my printer as it was, it was <laughs> able to, to give me everything. But um, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to savoring those opinions. Uh, read them slowly and carefully. We have a, uh, there's an interesting interplay, I think, from what I've seen and what I've seen on Twitter uh, commenting on, on the opinions, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, uh, an interplay between Thomas and Jackson uh, in dissent. Jackson, of course, not uh, technically participating in the Harvard case, just UNC, uh, but they're, you know, the, the, the two uh, black justices on the court uh, uh, feverishly disagreeing with other on the law, on the facts, on a meaning of, of, of race uh, in America. I'll, uh, I'll uh, put out something that, that uh, just got my attention. Apparently, Harvard has already sent out a letter leading with the quote that colleges may consider an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise, and adding, we will certainly comply with the court's decision. So uh, I guess Harvard and other similar schools is going to have an essay question asking, uh, precisely that. But let me give you the, the precise language uh, from John Roberts's opinion that that's taken from. Um, as all parties uh, agree, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion how race uh, affected his or her life through uh, discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. But despite the dissent's assertion to the contrary, universities may not simply establish through application essays or other means the regime we hold lawful uh, today. Uh, a benefit to a student who overcame racial discrimination, for example, must be tied to that student's courage and determination. A benefit to a student whose heritage or culture motivated him or her to assume a leadership role or attain a particular goal must be tied to that student's unique ability to contribute to the university. In other words, Robert says, and this is in the, in the penultimate paragraph to the majority opinion, the student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. Uh, I, I think lawyers and judges are going to be struggling over that particular issue. Uh, but let's turn to some questions that we have coming in uh, through viewers of the live stream. The question from, from YouTube, does this apply, or I guess, how does this apply to corporate DEI programs uh, or other anything else beyond college admissions? I mean, legally, it doesn't apply directly. The issue was in educational admissions. But what effect will this ruling have more broadly? I, I think that the, the answer to that is that, you know, when you're dealing with the corporate area, you're mainly dealing with employment. So that means you're dealing with, with Title VII. Um, and tr the truth is the law, uh, the Supreme Court precedent on employment is very different um, from the Supreme Court precedent um, on college admissions. And it is not favorable to the employer. Uh, back in 1979, um, we had an opinion um, Weber versus the Steelworkers, or Steelworkers versus Weber. I forget what, what order it was in. Um, and the court in that case, I think very wrongly, uh, decided that race preferences um, are under certain circumstances legal. But those circumstances were very, very limited. It's not a diversity rationale. It's never been a diversity rationale. What was important to the court um, was that there had been discrimination in the past, a manifest um, imbalance in the workforce is a term that, that the court used in, in one case. Um, and it can only be remedied um, under a very, very limited time frame. 
And I really doubt very much um, that many of the, the programs that large corporations have, have adopted in the last few years will survive. And that, I think that would have been true even if this decision had not come out the way that it did. Um, so the law is quite favorable um, to employees who have been discriminated against um, in, in whether they call them diversity or affirmative action programs. Um, and that the real uh, bottleneck is that very often individuals who've applied for a job and been turned down don't know uh, why that is. Um, the programs are, are usually fairly opaque. And when they do, they're often very concerned that if they bring a lawsuit in, in, against a potential employer, that they will be, be pegged as a troublemaker and they won't be able to get a job anywhere. Um, and so, you know, again, I think the real thing that's going on here is the Title VII um, law under Supreme Court precedent um, is already, um, I think, in a, in, a, in a reasonably good position um, on, on this issue. Um, another question here. Uh, when Brown v. Board was decided, uh, desegregation in public schools, of course, the southern states embarked on decades of massive resistance. And of course, it took a while after that 1955 decision uh, by law, de jure, for there to be de facto desegregation. Now, do you expect, the questioner asked, the same from the Harvards of the world and what can be done about it? Wei well, I'll, I'll go to you on this. Certainly, uh, you and the other parents and, and activist groups that you talk to have, have thought about this. Are you, uh, you know, as soon as the new policy is put in for the next admission cycle, are you ready to go with, with lawsuits or what are you going to be looking for in terms of resistance to this ruling? Well, some of the things that I mentioned already is that they, they are going to start playing with how they deal with zones, looking for the race proxies. Yeah, they're going to be race proxies. They won't call it that, obviously. But when you find out that uh, they want only certain zones and they happen to all be of one race or another, we're going to avoid these zones and we're going to take those zones. Uh, or we're going to take a socioeconomics of like uh, anybody who has a, a who lives in public housing, temporary housing. And those are those actually are very defining. And so uh, we, we will have to look and do that sort of uh, blocking and tackling now it, because it's no longer the, the, the big uh, issue of the grand issues, the grand principles. I think that we can uh, take that as a win. I think that on the principal side, we won. The uh, universities, uh, as Gail said before, there's a huge, huge machine, well, in a complex, an industrial complex in the, all of these education uh, institutions that are supporting diversity. Now, diversity itself is debunked in this. You know, what, what is this meaning of diversity, this melanin diversity? When originally Powell had, Justice Powell had said that this was before thought diversity, okay? This is, if, and this is not what's resulting on the campuses, obviously, they're not looking for thought diversity, but they're looking for melanin diversity. Um, and uh, you, Ilya, pointed out that the, these categorizations are really nonsensical uh, because you have Asians being so, so different, even including different races, uh, as religions and histories, uh, half of humanity and that, that's not, um, a, a ridiculous kind of lumping together. And it doesn't address either you know, what's happening uh, on the social economic standpoint, you know, when uh, this social thing is going to be played with all over. Uh, and when you look at the problem with economic, pure economic uh, decisions, the universities don't want to do that because they are finding that the blacks that they get, that they want actually, are not going to be the poorer ones. If you look at Harvard, two thirds of their black students are either middle-class or wealthy or, or foreign. So they're, they're going to play with all of these and we're gonna to have to continue to monitor it because uh, these are smart people. When you have huge uh, industrial complexes of DEI and, uh, looking for this kind of um, mix of their students, uh, you know that they're not gonna give up. When you have the University of Michigan uh, that has an, an org chart, eight pages org chart for the staff in DEI. That says something. They've got 200 people in DEI. Uh, they're not going to give up on it very easily. 
And that's what they spend their days doing, trying to figure out different ways of saying, you know, shall we try this or shall we try that? And it, it will be uh, something that we all, as, as people who are concerned about the rights of an individual to be judged for the individual qualities and abilities uh, to reject that kind of racial proxies that will be going on. Ilya, I think I can add something to that. Sure, sure. Uh, and that is with, with Brown versus the Board of Education, you know, it really took the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to get things really, really strong, uh, where the federal government was simply saying, we will cut off your federal funding uh, if you don't comply. And I think we've got to look now to some of the various incentives that colleges and universities have to continue uh, this push for racial preferences. I mean, one of them, for example, is uh, all of these schools have to be accredited. And the accreditor um, these days, um, unfortunately, they tend to be very ideologically driven. Um, this happened in California after Proposition 209 that accreditors told California schools, who were now being told by the state constitution they can't discriminate, it told them by hook or by crook, you've got to have a racially diverse class. Um, and so that created a, a, an incentive uh, to do whatever you could to get around uh, get around the law. Um, and I think what I would like to see is for Congress um, to take a look at these accreditors um, and say, look, um, the issue of the racial composition of the, of the student body and of the faculty, that is off the table for you. Um, you know, you, you, you cannot demand anything. Um, and so I think that would be very helpful. Also, programs like the Hispanic Serving Institutions Program, again, a federal program that, that shovels, shovels money uh, to schools that qualify as Hispanic Serving Institutions, which is defined to be essentially, you have at least 25% uh, students who identify as Hispanic. And that means any school that's sort of in the general range of being near that um, is gonna go nuts. Uh, to make sure they can keep that 25% level um, up. And what do they do to do that? They engage in racial preferences. It's, in, it's inevitable. Um, and I believe the program is in, unconstitutional. Um, and I believe that, you know, some case coming up soon, I hope, uh, will establish that. Here's another question. Uh, how does the ruling overcome the objection that private institutions should be able to use whatever standards they want? To do otherwise is an inappropriate property rights violation. Well, it's, it's unclear whether it's property rights, but in any event, private institutions are not the same as the government, and you don't have the um, the First Amendment or the Fourteenth Amendment, for that matter, uh, directly uh, applying. And uh, the answer is uh, that uh, any school that receives federal funding under Title VI of the Education Act um, is subject uh, or has been held to be subject to the same standards uh, in this area and in many others uh, as uh, public schools. Uh, the court did not uh, call for further briefing uh, or separate briefing on the issue of whether the constitutional standard on uh, under the 14th Amendment should be different uh, than the statutory standard under Title VI um, uh, and uh, did not uh, choose to disturb uh, that principle. I don't think the dissent uh, does so either. Uh, there's a concurring opinion by Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justice Thomas, uh, to make the same point, uh, or rather, he says, the court holds that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment does not tolerate this practice, uh, this practice being admitting or rejecting applicants based on race. He writes to, quote, emphasize that Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 does not uh, uh, either. Um, but, uh, you know, Gail, I'm, I'm sure you've given this some thought. Should there be uh, a, a distinction uh, between the two, uh, you know, in, in some future case, should, should private institutions be treated differently? Or is this an opportunity for private institutions to follow uh, Hillsdale College's example and say, no, we're, we're so committed to our, to our um, you know, race-based regime that we're just going to uh, reject federal funds to be able to, to engage in, in diversity? They want to do that? That's perfectly legal. They can reject the federal funding. Um, I suspect in the future there probably will be uh, a few more schools like Hillsdale that reject federal funding. Of course, Hillsdale doesn't reject federal funding because they want to discriminate on the basis of race. Um, they have other, other um, 
other things in mind. They believe that there is an overregulation of education, uh, and I think they are definitely right on that. We could do with a lot less regulation of education, but I don't see um, Title VI being being um, you know limited at any time soon. I think it's 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 there's a consensus in this country that race discrimination um, is wrong, um, at least. You know, among those people who think that discrimination against African-Americans is wrong, and I think if you look at the polls, most Americans agree that all race discrimination is wrong. So I doubt that very many schools are, are, are going to, to just come out and say, we don't want federal funding on this basis. Um, and you can only have so many schools that, that can survive that way. Um, it's, you know, running higher education, running a college or education, college or university is very expensive. Um, and there's only so much private funding out there. But, you know, that's, I wouldn't be surprised to find over time a few more schools um, following the, the Hillsdale um, precedent. We've gotten some, several more questions pushing again on what kind of uh, proxies or pretexts might be used to accomplish the same race balancing uh, goal. Um, well, you know, zip codes or zones, as Weiwa put it. Uh, I saw an interesting comment uh, on on Twitter um, uh, that that talked about how uh, everyone's expecting this, but it might be harder to do, easier said than done, in the sense that to coordinate that kind of uh, regime, or even what Harvard is saying, it looks like they're going to push on just calling for diversity statements in effect, or how have you been discriminated against statements, or however you know their lawyers massage that, um, because there's going to be a paper trail. If you're going to try to um, comply with the law, but go right up to the line or evade the law in some way, that in practice uh, is going to be very hard to do because lawsuits are going to come and this stuff is going to come out in uh, discovery. Um, uh, Gail, I get Wewa's not a lawyer, but Gail is. I don't know. Have you have you thought about the uh, the, the practical aspects of uh, this the, this future litigation, or, or maybe Gail, or maybe uh, Weiwa has talked to her lawyers about this. The practical aspects of of litigating these future cases. I mean, it's easier, of course, against state universities because you can start out with Freedom of Information Act requests um, and learn a lot about the internal workings uh, of a university's admissions policies. Um, but it's also possible uh, against private universities if you have some sense that they are discriminating. Uh, enough to get you know get your foot in the door, uh, then you've got the discovery process um, under which you can get at a lot of information about how they have have developed their admissions criteria. And I think it's true um, that when schools start developing their criteria um, with regard to what I've been calling class-based affirmative action, um, there's going to be a paper trail. Um, it's going to be clear. Uh, that they have repeatedly run the numbers to see what, what result will happen um, if they adopt a particular definition um, of socioeconomic status. Um, so the, it will be complicate, a complicated case um, and I think expensive to litigate, uh, but those cases will happen um, and I would expect them to happen fairly soon. Yeah, I agree with Gail here then it's not an easy task to go forward to find all of these uh, uh, ways that they hide their racial preference uh, initiatives. They're going to have different kinds of non-academic personality assessments. So the more that you take away from the academic side, you could go and put in any sort of holistic criteria that you would look to. Um, and ultimately, they really should be taking off that box where you check for race. And because when you put in that box, you know that it's going to be used in some way. And in many cases they have found it, and there's been a survey that showed that there was on the white side, a lot of, of um, well, cheating on that because you, you're cheating on a box to put on a race that you have a small amount of uh, Native American blood. It seems like that that's a very common thing. It's not just Elizabeth Warren. Um, so when you have a huge percentage of people being encouraged to uh, falsify, actually, their own experience, it gets to be a counter to what is best for our entire society. And of course, for the university directly who's using this kind of assessment. So I think that we, it's going to be very 
difficult, but as they develop the different kinds of ways of sorting, doing the sort for, for the uh, applicants, I think that we have to just be attuned to that as the different universities say, well, all of a sudden they're all coming, well, zone is the easy one, but uh, if there are certain things that we know that are profiling, uh, we know that Asians, for example, will not want to put down that they are a classical musician. That's one of the things that they're told by the counselors, uh, don't put it down. If you play the violin or the piano, don't put that down. Now, if you were a drummer, that's another matter. <laughs> uh, so that's those are things that I think we we have to sort out and figure out what sort of patterns there are. Uh, because eventually it's uh, the patterns really show when the numbers, the, the, the SAT numbers were so astonishingly different between the different races. Um, it, it's hard not to feel that kind of, of injustice that was happening. And we'll have to see how they continue to do that. One interesting thing about uh, this uh, blockbuster ruling and clearly the biggest uh, case of this term is that uh, even though Twitter is exploding and le legal elites who skew to the left uh, are upset, um, it seems like uh, the reaction nationwide is going to be different than last term's uh, explosive ruling on abortion, the, the Dobbs case, where that issue is more or less splits the country, whereas on affirmative action, setting aside the elites, um, a comfortable majority of Americans, including every demographic group, no matter how you how you slice it, uh, is against uh, these naked racial preferences for admissions. What does that dynamic, not that the Supreme Court, you know, is trying to follow popular uh, opinion, but what does the, uh, the 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 atmosphere, the popular opinion, the political uh, atmosphere, if you will, into which this uh, ruling comes, how will that affect either future litigation or uh, policies uh, that institutions in American society adopt? Who wants to take a stab at that? Or you can dispute my premise because I was making some assertions I, there myself. I think that you are right that the majority of uh, the big majority, it's not a small like 51%, but you know we're talking about two thirds of the uh, Americans, when you frame it properly, to say that uh, affirmative action is not just something that's nice and it sounds good like uh, what it used to be. Affirmative action began as a way of saying that you will not discriminate based on race. That's what the executive orders were in, in the 1960s under uh, Kennedy and Johnson. You know, this was a way of not discriminating against people for race. And it morphed into something that became, let's discriminate based on race. And so uh, the, I think that the vast majority would like to see that we could get to that time in our country that we could really say we shouldn't be poisoning the well here of trying to sort people by their race, judge them by their race. The, the things that have happened with the mismatching, everybody knows. Everybody knows the truth that the, there are people who are not prepared to get into certain universities, when you find that at MIT, most of the blacks land up in the bottom 10% of the class, you know, that's not good for them. Uh, a lot of them, nearly half of them have to drop out or take extra time to, to graduate because of that. This mismatch is very harmful and it has uh, ramifications when people are judged again, you know, by their race. When you go in to see a doctor and you say, okay, it's going to be this, race or that race, what does it mean? And they should not be judged by that. They should be, people should be assured and comfortable knowing that when they see somebody that they have achieved as everybody else did in a university and getting into university. And this has ramifications on not just the colleges, as I mentioned, I've mentioned also in, in, in the medical schools and doctors, um, and, and that will have a ripple effect in many, many areas uh, across the country. Elia, I, I, I agree very much that, that polls indicate that most Americans oppose race preferential admissions. 
Um, and the more clear the question is, the more they're against it. Uh, and I don't mean questions that are that are rigged uh, to 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 produce a majority in our favor. Uh, I mean questions where they lay out very specifically um, that we're talking about preferential treatment, and if preferential treatment isn't given, that will mean many fewer um, underrepresented minorities at top schools. And yet, people uniformly, um, uniform majorities are in favor um, of race neutral admissions. And I think that's important. That doesn't mean that, that there isn't going to be a big hubbub in the coming weeks, uh, coming months about this decision. There will be a lot of people, um, you know, very, very upset. Um, but I think what, what um, legislators uh, and judges um, and maybe one day even journalists are coming to understand um, is that, you know, Twitter is not, you know, middle America. Um, that when it comes to actual opinions, uh, these polls are accurate, as reflected uh, just three years ago with Proposition 16, um, when the California's deep blue legislature uh, thought they were going to have an easy time um, repealing Proposition 209, which here in California uh, had amended the state constitution to prohibit race preferential admissions policies. Uh, the California legislature thought, hey, we're a majority minority state, it's time to repeal it. Uh, but when it, voters actually got to the ballot box, 57% uh, of them um, opposed repealing Prop 209. And that shocked, that shocked um, the California legislator. And the New York Times reported, I think just a week ago, it shocked Democrats everywhere. But that's, that's, that's what Americans think. Um, and I'm proud of them for that. I actually wanted to end on that, Gail, your experience with um, the campaign uh, 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 against uh, repealing Prop 209, which uh, California is one of several states that has either by referendum or legislation sometimes prohibited the use of uh, race in admissions. But what has been California's experience? Because now we're effectively uh, going to have a nationwide uh uh, experience that California has had for 25 years since Prop 209, or a little longer than that. Um, you know, how has California dealt with it? Is it just end runs and workarounds, or have there been, uh, are there now best practices for institutions that uh, are acting in good faith from the California experience? Well, it's both. You know, I, I cannot say that the University of California uh, has been absolutely scrupulous. Uh, about about adhering to Proposition 209. They have not been. Um, however, um, it is still true um, that they end up being bound uh, to some degree um, by Proposition 209. And the proof of that, if you need proof, is the fact that they spent millions, millions uh, to try to repeal Prop 209. Um, and that, you know, they did adopt, um, they did adopt um, class-based affirmative action. Um, and but what upset them is that meant it was very difficult for them to admit uh, wealthy African Americans and Latinos, um, and so they they wanted to do that, um, and they can't they can't under Prop 209, um, and they wouldn't have spent uh, the amount of money that they did. Uh, they they actually outspent um, the No on Prop 16 campaign, which I co-chaired, um, something like 17 to one. Um, and Californians still rejected it. Um, you know, this mattered to them because it does constrain them, but it doesn't constrain them as much as I wish it did. All right. Well, I think it's time for some concluding thoughts. Uh, Wewa, what, what is your, you know, it's now been almost three hours uh, since the opinion came down. I'm sure you've, uh, the dust has settled in your mind about all of this. What, uh, you know, at this point, not having fully read the whole thing or or process it, what, what do you want to leave our viewers with? I want to leave our viewers with thanks. I think that I want to thank Students for Fair Admissions. I want to thank Edward Bloom. He couldn't make it today with the decision coming out today, but um, it, it was so important, this very hard work to try to make sure that all races would not be judged for their race. Uh, this is a critical point for us. So the dust hasn't settled, the battle continues, but this is a major, major 
victory. And so I thank them all. And you Gail, too. thank you, Wewa. Gail, any final words? Well, you know, I agree with, with Wewa that this is extremely encouraging. We've still got a number of battles ahead of us, um, but this is, this is big. Uh, it's very big. Um, and it, 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 it restores my faith um, in, in the judicial process uh, on this issue, at least. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling good, and I am intending to read every word, every footnote of that opinion, um, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, well, as, as, as this all works, I have a feeling that I'll have uh, published a couple of op-eds uh, before finally reading every last word in the opinion. There's just too much in the way the news cycle works. This is, this is what you do. You grab the, the top lines. Um, but I, I, too, am encouraged uh, by this. You know, lots of speculation of what's actually going on at the court. John Roberts' strategy, uh, although on race issues, he has been anything other uh, than uh, a squish. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, this is 45 years and a day uh, after Bakke, after Justice Powell, the one vote opened the door to race-based college admissions through the diversity conceit, uh, and now six justices closed it. Uh, I filed a brief before I joined uh, MI just over a year ago. I joined with the Hamilton Lincoln Law Institute uh, uh, against uh, uh, this use of, of racial preferences, supporting students for fair admissions. And I'm, I'm gratified and I, I'm thankful to all of you and, and MI's supporters uh, that the court uh, has finally recognized that the Constitution prohibits such racial discrimination. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.